Revelation chapter 8, verses 1 through 5. And when he broke the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. I saw the seven angels who stand before God, and seven trumpets were given to them. And another angel came and stood at the altar, holding a golden censer. Much incense was given to him, that he might add it to the prayers of all the saints upon the golden altar which was before the throne. And the smoke of the incense, with the prayers of the saints, went up before God out of the angel's hand. And the angel took the censer, and he filled it with fire of the altar, and threw it to the earth. And there followed peals of thunder, and sounds, and flashes of lightning, and an earthquake. The utterly astonishing thing about this text is that it portrays the prayers of the saints as the instrument by which God, at the end of the age, ushers in the close of the world with his great judgments. It pictures prayers, the prayers of the saints, as accumulating on the altar before the throne of God until the time appointed by God when they are taken like fire from the altar and thrown upon the earth, causing great upheavals at the end of the age. In other words, what this text is about is what has become over the last 2,000 years, what has become of the prayers of the saints when millions of times, year after year, month after month, week after week, saints with a God-exalting faith have said, Hallowed be thy name, Thy kingdom come, thy will be done all over the earth the way it's done in heaven. What has become of those prayers? What do you think God does with millions upon millions of ascending prayers from the church of God around the world year after year as they cry out, Come, Lord Jesus, wrap it up, bring your kingdom, hallow your name. Fill the earth with your glory. What do you think? Do those prayers just kind of go plunk on the ground, bang off the ceiling, disappear into the stratosphere? You know where they go, according to this text? They go into an altar. An altar of God before the throne, and a fire is blazing. And it's growing hotter and hotter more beautiful and mingled with the incense of heaven and the prayers and and worship of the angels, it is arising with more and more pleasure into the nostrils of God until the fullness of time when He looks down at the prayers of the saints, millions upon millions upon millions upon millions of them for 2,000 years said in His Son's name, He calls for an angel, Michael, Gabriel, and he says, fill your censer, the time has come, and take those prayers faithfully prayed for the consummation of my kingdom and throw them on the earth and make it happen. This text is about the unbelievable role of the church in bringing this world to an end. My breath has been taken away in the last three weeks of pondering this text. I said to the group praying downstairs before I came up, 
I really think you need a massive vision of the sovereignty of God in order to properly handle the massive vision of the significance of the people of God in this text. Lest we become God. Because what this text says is that the supplications of us tiny, little, insignificant human beings is the means by which this age comes to consummation. God will not end the world and wrap it up and bring His kingdom until we have filled the altar with our prayers. It is an awesome text and an awesome truth. And I want us to stand back now and try to get our bearings in this book because I've sort of dumped it on you and Revelation is the most strange book in the Bible. It's the one book that John Calvin did not write a commentary on. Anybody wonder why? He didn't know what was going on. He, he couldn't figure this book out. A lot of people today think they've got it figured out. I don't think they probably do as clearly as some of them lay it out on their charts. I don't have a chart of Revelation, but I think I get the gist of Revelation. I get the thrust of Revelation, and I can see some trajectories in Revelation, and that's all I'm going to claim this morning. And that will be enough to blow your head off if you've got eyes to see. Really, I remember writing a big paper on Revelation in seminary called The Doctrine of Least Meaning. Meaning, if the least that I understand is true from Revelation, <laughs> I ought to be so radically different than I am, and this church ought to be so radically different than it is. Who needs the rest of the, of the book? You know? Just what you can understand from Revelation is enough to keep your heart and mind reeling for years to come. But, I've got to try to show you where we're coming from now in chapter 8. I've kind of plopped you right into chapter 8, and the first thing you read is verse 1, and when he broke the seventh seal, there was silence. Where'd that come from? What's this seventh seal thing? So let's back up, and I'm going to try to get you on course here with the seals. Let's go back to chapter 5. Got your Bible and you want to follow along with me? We'll start at chapter 5, because that's where the seals turn up. First, and we need to figure out what is Jesus doing in opening the seals of this scroll. Chapter 5, verse 1. John has been caught up into heaven to see a vision, and he, he says, I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne. That's God the Father. He saw God with a, a book in his hand, a scroll, written inside and on the back, sealed up with seven seals. Now, let me try to clarify what he's looking at here. This is a book. Book is not a good translation for this word. They didn't have these back then. This is a codex. Pages, glue, they didn't have that. What they had was long pieces of parchment written on this side, some of them 30 feet. One of them we have is 130 feet long, preserved in the caves of southern Palestine, and turned over and written on the back. You roll them up, and then there's a seam. So you roll it up, there's a seam like that, okay? And then you seal it. 
And this one is sealed with seven seals. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven. I remember for 25 years, I thought, here's a seal, boom. Here's another seal, boom. Here's another seal, boom. Here's another seal. And then you, when you got all seven of them open, you got the book read. Not true. The book isn't open until the seventh seal is off. Okay? And if anybody was misunderstanding like I was misunderstanding for all those years, a scroll has seven seals and you've got to take them all off. So Jesus sees this in God's hand. A, a scroll. Now, what is it? What is the opening of this scroll? Now, my answer to that question is, the opening of this scroll and the stretching it out and the seeing what's in it is the unfolding of the end of the age. Now, the reason I think that is because in chapter 4, verse 1, when John gets caught up in the Spirit, it says that he's told he will see what must take place after this. So John is told when you get up here, what you're going to be shown is the events of the end. And what he sees is a scroll in the hand of God with seven seals. So I think what the scroll represents is history to be unfolded for the end of the age. And it's sealed up. In verse 2 of chapter 5, an angel cries out, Who is worthy to open the book or the, the scroll and to break its seal? Now, that's an amazing question. I mean, that's a sermon. We had a sermon on that question. Because you know what that says? That says that God's will is that somebody else besides Him unroll history. And that ought to shock us. God doesn't need anybody to open this scroll. God doesn't need help to run history and to wrap it up. But He aims to get help. He aims for somebody else to open the scroll. And the person's got to be worthy. And so the angel says, who is it? Where is he? And the answer, verse 3, no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And John starts to cry. The reason he's crying, I think, is because he was told in chapter 4, you're going to see it. You're going to see history unfold before your eyes and you're going to write some of it down for Minneapolis. So they can catch on to the trajectory of God and how it's all going to be wrapped up. And they can establish their faith and know He's going to win. That's the point of Revelation, by the way. God wins. And He's crying because the angel says, there is nobody. Verse 5, an elder, I don't know who these people are, 24 elders around the throne representing the dignity and awesomeness of God's counsel. Maybe, stop weeping, he says. Behold, the lion that is from the tribe of Judah, that's Jesus, the root of David, he's overcome so as to open the scroll and its seven seals. Now ask yourself, Overcome, what does that mean? Jesus has overcome what? And why is it this overcoming that fits him to open the seal? What overcome? Answer, verse 9. All those around the throne, the elders, angels, 
singing a new song to Jesus, saying, Worthy art thou to take the scroll and to break its seal. So yes, he is worthy. There is one person in all the universe who can open history. Worthy art thou to take the book and to break its seals. Why? Why is he worthy? For thou wast slain. What an answer. What an answer. He died. He got killed. So he's worthy to open history. What is going on here? Let's keep going. Thou wast slain and didst purchase for God with thy blood men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation and hast made them a kingdom. Priests to our God and they will reign on earth. So the answer given in those verses is that God's will is that His Son be the one who join Him in opening and administering the close of the age, and that the reason His Son is given that privilege is not stated to be that He is the eternal, everlasting, equal, divine God, which is true, but that He died. Now, there is an awesome mystery here. Here's the way I would put it for you to think about it. And I'm not going to stay long on this, but this is another sermon. The cross is the key of history. Picture, just take it in your hand. The cross is the key of history. God will not bring history to a consummation and a close without the cross being inserted in the lock and turned and opened. Jesus died, ransomed you from Minneapolis and people from all the nations, made you a kingdom of priests to offer prayer to God, and made you to reign on the earth, and therefore God says He can run history. Now, if I stood back and I thought, now, Lord, what are you saying here about the connection between the right to close the age and bring the judgments of God and the redemption of God on the earth and Jesus and His cross. What's the connection there? And this one thought I would leave with you. God is the kind of God, it seems, who if He is going to bring the bloody judgments which stream through the rest of this book, if He's going to bring the awful, horrendous, bloody judgments that make the world say, mountains fall on us and hide us from the wrath of the Lamb. If He's going to bring that on the world, He's not going to do it without a person who has suffered horribly. The judge who has the sword coming out of his mouth and will rule the nations with a rod of iron was one day hanging heaving, dying, suffering more than any of us collectively will ever suffer for the world. Something here, folks. Something awful about who's going to wrap it up. It's going to be an awful day. Blood is going to run as deep as a horse's bridle. But Jesus already shed it. It won't be without. Well, you take that 
And you ponder the implications of that for the kind of God that's bringing history to a close. He starts now to open the seal. He has the right, and he takes them off one at a time. And as he's taking them off, bear in mind what he sees with every seal that comes off. John sees something. Every time a seal is removed by Jesus, John sees a new thing. He is not seeing the content of the book. He's seeing preparation for the content of the book to be opened. The content of the book is the close of history. What he's seeing, I believe, is what Jesus called in Mark 13, 8, the beginning of the birth pain. Let me read that verse to you. For nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places. There will also be famines. These things are merely the beginning of the birth pain. That's, I believe, what you see as each seal comes off. These are characteristic calamities of this age which we live in right now, and they will intensify as the end or the readiness to open the scroll comes. Let's walk through them so that you can see what they are. Number one, chapter six. Verses 1 and 2. When the first seal is opened, a white horse goes forth to conquer. Maybe it's Jesus conquering through the gospel as the gospel overtakes and reaches all the peoples of the world. Maybe other commentators say it simply stands for military conquest. Number 2. A red horse for the second seal in verse 4 stands for war, the taking away of peace, men killing each other. Seal number 3, verses 5 and 6 of Chapter 6, a black horse, famine, a quart of wheat is sold for a day's wages. That is happening, is happening. Seal number 4, opening the fourth seal in verse 8, an ashen horse, a pale horse, death, pestilence, wild beasts. Seal number 5 in verses 9 to 11, no longer a horse, but now he glimpses the souls of the martyrs under the altar of God, crying out for the vindication of the gospel and of their own testimony and of their blood. Seal number six is opened in verses 12 following. And this is as close to the end and the content of the the uh, scroll as we get earthquake, darkened sun, moon and stars falling, heaven splitting mountains and islands moving out of their places Enemies of God saying, fall upon us, guard us, hide us from the wrath of the Lamb. And that's that's it before the seventh seal. And then, chapter 7 is a glimpse at what God is doing to take care of the saints during this time. It's a picture in two halves. The first half in verses 1 to 8 is a picture of the sealing of the saints upon the earth. And the picture in verses 9 to 17 is a picture of the saints glorified and secure and joyful and triumphant in heaven with their shepherd God taking care of them. In other words, that chapter, I think, is inserted here in the midst of these seals to say, if you wonder, by the way, how it will go with the saints of God, be assured he will take care of them and see them to glory. So here we are at chapter 8. The seventh seal is the last one on the book. So the scroll is there. It's starting to peel here. There's one more seal left before the scroll can be opened. 
And it says in verse 1, When he, Jesus, broke the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for half an hour. And the next sound that we hear is verse 5. When the bowl of fire and prayer is thrown upon the earth and there are peals of thunder and sounds and flashes of lightning and an earthquake. Now, what happened in that half hour? What's the meaning of this silence? What's the point here? Up until now, the sovereignty of God in the opening of the seals and the bringing of judgments of various kinds upon the earth is stunning. And you don't see our role at all. Here comes pestilence. and Here comes war. Here comes beasts. And, and here are the saints dead in heaven. And the question arises, do we play any role at all in history? Are we like leaves blown off a tree on the ocean of sovereignty, just kind of floating here and there, or like a, a little feather that comes off a bird in the wind and just blows with divine providence wherever it goes, and there's no causative role for the saints in the world? One of the purposes of this half hour is to push everything aside Silence heaven and make crystal clear your role. It is an astonishing. Let me read you just a couple of sentences from Leon Morris' commentary. He says, The saints appear insignificant to men at large. Isn't that true? I mean, have you ever thought how the world views the church? I mean, they're at home. What, are they watching the Vikings already? Yep, they're watching the Vikings. They're at home. They're watching the game. And they're thinking, man, what a drag to be in church. I mean, if, if, if you're talking about an irrelevant event in the history of the world, it's the gathering of all those crazy Christians in all those houses of worship all over the city. Are they ever crazy? What a waste of time. Zero significant in their mind. The Vikings, whoa, Reality. Reality. Woo! I mean, good grief. Here's what Leon Morris said. The saints appear insignificant to men at large. But in the sight of God, they matter. Even great cosmic cataclysms are held back on their account. And the praises of the angels Give way to silence so that the saints may be heard. So, there are two things at least going on in this silence. One is a dread, dumbstruck awe as the hosts of heaven sort of shudder back from the scroll that begins to peel open. And they're saying, if the seal were that, what will the scroll be? And they tremble with dumbstruck dread and awe in silence for half an hour. 
But there's something else going on in that silence. Verse 3. Another angel came and stood at the altar holding a golden censer. And much incense was given to him that he might add it to the prayers of all the saints. Well, let's just stop right there. That is the most important phrase. Three weeks ago, that's what took me. As I was saying, Lord, what for prayer week this year? What for prayer week? This is the phrase that said, here it is. The prayers of all the saints. That's you, alright? Anybody not included in there? If, if, if so, come forward at the end of the service and we'll pray you into sainthood. Okay? Which simply means becoming a Christian. Believe. Christians are the saints. You are there. This angel comes and he has a censer full of the incense of heaven, the angelic worship and prayer. And he adds it to the prayers of all the saints upon the altar. Everything that's been gathering there over the years, uh, centuries, which was before the throne of God. He's pausing here in silence to show John and to show every reader of John's book what role you play in bringing history to And it is a role that is absolutely breathtaking and stunning. Do you ever wonder what becomes of your prayers? Do you ever ask, when I pray, hallowed be thy name. When I pray, thy kingdom come, Maranatha, come Lord Jesus, wrap it up, hasten the day, speed the gospel. What happens to that? What happens to it? Well, I'll tell you what happens to it. It goes onto a microchip in the altar. I was thinking, if if human beings can invent, and we are amazing in what we can invent, that's why we've got to keep God so central in our eyes, lest we become self-idolaters. If humans can invent a microchip on which there are millions of bytes of communication, God has no problem recording your prayer. (laughs) And they're all there. Every one of them that you've ever prayed, or that any saint in every little, any little closet, in any little prison, out of the way, never heard of, dying, poof, gone, unknown, forgotten, it's there on the altar. And it is burning. And it is burning brighter and brighter and God smells it. And one of these days, he says here, an angel is coming. And the angel is going to have a censer, which I think represents probably the worship and the prayers of the angelic host, to mingle with what's already there. Verse 4, the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints went up before God out of the angel's hand. It's rising and God is smelling it and in His infinite wisdom, He knows when the time has come for the maximum glorification of His Son when to take the altar of prayers prayed in His Son's name and do them. Verse 5. The angel took the censer. 
He filled it with the fire of the altar. That's the burning prayers of the saints. And He threw it on the earth. And that brought about the beginning and carries forth to the end the unfolding of history. Thunder, sounds, flashes of lightning, and earthquake. The unmistakable point of this text is that your prayers bring the close of history. This has so blown me away in recent weeks that I've been reading commentary after commentary, wanting very much not to be eccentric in my interpretation of a book that is given to promoting eccentric interpretation. And I have been greatly encouraged, and I just share the encouragement with you, that commentary after commentary after commentary expresses astonishment. I'll just read you three of them. Thomas Torrance, a a Scottish theologian. The fire comes from the very altar on which the prayers of the saints have been offered. This surely means that the prayers of God's people play a necessary part in ushering in the judgments of God. What are the real master powers behind the world? And what are the deeper secrets of our destiny? Here is the astonishing answer. You don't usually read words like astonishing in New Testament commentary. They don't usually say, oh. I don't like commentaries for that reason. They're not worshipful books. They're necessary books. I'm glad I don't have to write them. But they're not usually worshipful books. But he he broke the rule. Here is the astonishing answer. The prayers of the saints and the fire of God are more powerful than anything. That means that more potent, more powerful than all the dark and mighty powers let loose in the world, more powerful than anything else, this is him talking, I'm not talking, more powerful than anything else is the power of prayer set ablaze by the fire of God and cast upon the earth, close quote. I was thinking with these guys downstairs just before I came up, trying to express my sense of breathlessness about the truth of this text, that, that what you do when you pray, especially when you pray large, global, God-exalting prayers for the close of the age and the coming of the kingdom and the doing of His will and the hallowing of His name, what you're doing at that moment makes all the peace talks between all the rulers of the world all the military movements in the world, all the upheavals politically and socially look like Red Rover, Red Rover, send Johnny right over. Do you believe that? When you pray, thunder is gathering in heaven. Oh, I want you to believe that. I want you to believe that for your prayer life in 1992. Here's another one. Beckwith. This may be the best commentary on the book. Quote, he doesn't allow himself to get very carried away. The events that follow this episode, verses 1 to 5, of incense offerings, as one trumpet after another sounds, are 
the answer to the prayers of the suffering expectant church. In other words, the rest of the book of Revelation, the trumpets, the bowls and everything are the unfolding of the prayers of the saints. And history won't end without your prayer. Another thing we were talking about downstairs, this was a very fruitful consultation between the services, is why does the sovereign God do this? Why does the sovereign God say, I'm not going to do it without my people? I'm not going to end history without their involvement. I won't move off this throne and bring about the scroll until the bowl is full of prayers. And we thought of this other text from Matthew 9.38 where the sovereign Lord of the universe and the ruler and owner of the farm says to his farmhands, pray the Lord of the harvest to send forth laborers. And we say, we tell you to send forth laborers. You know to send forth laborers. They why do you tell us to tell you how to run the farm? And I think God would say, be quiet and do what I tell you. It is not yours to understand the mystery of why I give you such an awesome, dignified role in the bringing of history to consummation. I choose to involve you. I choose to make you infinitely significant almost. That's probably an overstatement. But it is awesome. It is a breathtaking role that you have to play in 1994. Here's the last one. George Ladd, great teacher that I had at Fuller, has gone to glory and sees things a lot more clearly than in his commentary. Now, though it's a good commentary, this verse, he says, verse 5, dramatically pictures the fact that it is in answer to the prayers of the saints that God's judgments will fall upon the earth. They all say it. This is not my interpretation alone. It's all over the place. And it is unspeakably great. Now I just want to close with two implications. Implication number one. Jesus said in Matthew 18, Don't lose heart but keep on praying. Don't lose heart. Keep on praying. We tend to lose heart. My aim in this sermon is to help you not lose heart. And one of the great implications of this text is that we ought not to lose heart. You have never prayed a believing, God-honoring prayer that was ever ignored. Or ever forgotten. Or ever in vain. Everyone you've ever prayed. I wonder how many you've prayed. I wonder how many prayers we've prayed in this church. Corporately right now in this room, maybe 500 people, 400 people here. How many have we prayed? A million? Two, three, four? They're all there. They're on the altar. They are burning with sweet savor in the nostrils of God. And when the time comes, they will be answered. That... The way God handles the prayers of the saints is by gathering them into containers. You know the psalm that says, my tears are kept in a bottle. The Lord sees every tear, every prayer, He catches it. Which means that at the ordinary level of praying for the conversion of your dad, praying that your marriage would go better, praying that our church would grow and be strong, Praying that America would be more moral and less degenerate. 
that God doesn't treat those prayers in little isolation, as though he has to figure out what to do with this one and what to do with that one. He has this way of kind of gathering all the prayers that are being prayed about President Clinton or for me or for a father. Or He gathers them all up and they are accumulating somewhere. And he hasn't ignored a one of them. And at the proper time, when they reach the proper proportion, and this does not have to be at the end of the age, that's why it's an implication I'm drawing out, when it reaches that proper proportion, he can say to an angel, the time is right for the conversion of Bob. Pour it on Bob today. He takes the jar of cousins and parents and friends, 10,000 prayers for Bob. And in Bob's workplace, he just goes, and Bob says, there's a God. I better get ready. Or however it happens. A lot of times, We wait and we wait and we wait and we think, he's just not listening. He's listening. He's gathering. He's accumulating. And even if the consummation of that gathered prayer is not exactly the way you prayed it, he's pouring those prayers out in a way that is best for the greatest number of people involved in around that particular situation. And we have to stand in awe and say, I wouldn't run the world the way you do. I would do it this way and I would do it that way, but not to say the prayers were unheard. No, that's not the case. Second implication, that was number one. Be encouraged, keep on, don't grow weary. The second implication is this. Operation World. God did something last October, November. He moved about... It's over 400, I don't know the exact number. Over 400 households in this church to buy this book. It blew us away as a staff. We bought 100. We had to get 300 and they disappeared the next Sunday. And last week they sold like hotcakes. God's doing something with this book. Something is tugging this congregation to put this in your house. This is a book about how to pray through the world. We as a staff try to catch on to God's Spirit, sometimes. We, we try to say, are you doing anything? And we want to get on board if you're doing it. You know, if the wind's blowing, we don't want our motors on the boat. We want our sails in the sky. So we lifted our sail up and we believe that God is doing something. And what he's doing is preparing you to pray through this book in 1994. So I hope that I'm in tune with him and that you hear this land on you right now with freedom and rather than burden. That that I'm inviting us as a church to pray through Operation World in 1994. Philippines, September 16 to 18. You ever devoted any? 1678, three days to praying for the Philippines? El Salvador, April 26. All kinds of facts to help you, to help you pray for El Salvador. Belize. March 6th. Let's do it. I just think the flavor it will give to our church to daily open this up, read some facts about the country, and send up onto the altar a prayer like, Lord, bring your kingdom in Germany. Bring your kingdom in Guam. Bring your 
kingdom in Indonesia. Bring your kingdom in Kenya. Bring your kingdom in Nepal. Bring your kingdom in Oman. Bring your kingdom in Romania. And every one of them lands on the altar and it is not wasted. And it may be, if my principle that I drew out of the text is right, that it won't be the end of the age when that happens. Merely. It'll be 1989 and 70 years of anti-communist praying is poured out on the USSR. That's what happened. That's what happened. It's over. And for any who have eyes to see, it was a failure. Godless communism and totalitarianism is a failure. Bless God, in response to 10 million prayers, the time came earlier rather than later. And he poured his altar bowl out on that land, and he hasn't stopped pouring to this moment, as some of you know and are ready to join him in working. Your prayers will bring in the close of the age. Never are they in vain. Let's pray. Lord, tomorrow night, the perspectives course will set a match to the tinder of this truth. And I pray that a hundred of our people and those outside this church will be there to explode with you in your purposes for the world. We're going to take a few minutes now, Lord, and lift our voices to pray. And I ask, Father, that you would come and that you would enable us in these next few minutes to lay on the altar some of the most earnest, God-exalting, loving, believing prayers that we've ever laid.